Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Catherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Good morning, good afternoon, whatever time it is that you're listening to this, thank you. Thank you for listening throughout the year. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for supporting the Development Debrief. This is our one-year anniversary episode, and I am so happy, so happy to be able to look back on all of the things that we've learned in the field, in our lives. I sit down with my dad, Fred Van Sickle, who works in development at Cornell University. You may recognize his voice because he had an episode pre-pandemic, and we talked about different topics, but I was able to talk with him about the podcast process, and I share some of the things that I learned, and then I ask him about what he's learned as a leader in the field. Let's think about it, and I would love to hear from you. What have you learned, and what has been meaningful for you this year? Let's get started. Probably one of the most wild years for most people, and it's pretty cool that the whole process has been recorded weekly through this podcast. I'm really grateful for that. Well, I couldn't agree more. It's the craziest year I ever remember, and I'm a lot older than you are. But I think your podcast has been a lifeline for people. You must feel good about that. It's hard to believe that that's true, but people have said that, and it's incredibly humbling because it makes me feel a little less crazy spending hours on the weekend editing this thing. But I'm absolutely thrilled that that's been one of the outcomes of this process. What have you learned? What, what, what have you applied to your own fundraising? It's a really good question. And even though it sounds really simple, trying new things, not knowing how it's going to go. You know, I took some risks with some of my episodes. I went into some touchy subjects that I didn't know how people were going to react. One of the biggest things I learned is that everyone doubts themselves, but that that doesn't have to get in the way of taking action. So how do you feel about our field and your career as a result of this experience? I've always loved Dev Life from the first time I helped you work an event as a kid. And I think I just love it even more after this, which I'm really happy about because that was one of my goals was to really bring forward and amplify people's voices in the field and show how special it is. And I think that really shone through this year. People are generous with their time, with their networks. People love what they do and people genuinely care about the mission. And I just thought that came through in almost every single episode. Do you feel the same way about your own career as a result of this? You know, I feel more inclined towards entrepreneurial and creative work as a result because it's been Hmm. so rewarding trying new things. So I just, I think I even more so than before want to keep trying new things. And maybe part of that has been what we've gone through with COVID-19, but continuing to innovate. So you didn't know what year one would be like. God knows you didn't know there'd be a pandemic or Black Lives Matter. But what do you, when you look ahead to year two, what do you want to accomplish? What topics or guests are you really keen to focus on? I want to continue to be inclusive. I was really amazed by how much excitement there was around the two museum episodes. So I want to continue to broaden the audience and the feeling of we can all learn from one another because I think that's been another huge theme is we're not competitors. We can share what we're doing. We can share what works and grow from each other. And I want to continue to bring forward fresh perspectives. So 
I'm planning on doing an episode with someone in real estate to talk about negotiations and things like that so that we can continue to look at our work from new angles. I want to get a few more donor voices. Those are great. And I tell us about making the podcast. I hear you talk about, I'm up late, I'm working on it. I mean, what does it take? How much work does it take to do a podcast? Uh, for those of us, not me, but who might be anticipating, gee, I'd love to do a podcast. What what is it like? What kind of work does it take? What kind of effort? So my initial response to that would be, it is an absolute labor of love, but like any labor of love, it's so worth it. Each episode has averaged about six hours of editing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Some episodes need less editing than others. It depends on how organized our thought process and our conversation is. Wow. Which podcasts have been the most popular? So the first two guests are the most popular. Craig Smith owning the conversation is far and away number one. And I want to take this opportunity to thank Craig for being an amazing champion all year long of sharing the podcast and really encouraging me because I'll never forget after I edited his and sent it to him, I was literally holding my breath, like sitting by my phone, waiting for him to call me and tell me what he thought. And he said, I listened to it with my wife and my kids and we absolutely loved it. And they were just so supportive. And so I think that gave me the confidence to just keep doing it and realize it had some real value to it. So Craig was number one. Chris Haight was number two. Dan Peterson, who talked about maximum flexibility for the early days of COVID-19, was number three. And Birgit Smith-Burton, who spoke about understanding racism and fundraising, was number four. And I think what that really speaks to is how much our field cared about learning how to pivot. You know, we could have easily been like, it's a hard year, our numbers are going to be down, but no, everyone wanted to hear what he had to say, what they were doing. And then with, I think what Birgit's episode really taught me is that people really care about the racial reckoning and what it's, what's going to be needed in our field and in our country to make change. I'm proud to tell you that our audience showed with their downloads what mattered. What have you learned about virality? Is that a word uh, in social media? I mean, what, what, takes, what takes flight and what doesn't? I'm just, I'm fascinated. I don't understand it very well myself. There was a direct correlation with guests who shared their episodes on their social media and their professional platforms that those episodes got more listens. And I know it's because the, our audience got excited about hearing from people that they know. And what I knew before this and what I know now is our field is really close. People know each other. I think there was a real, I could feel a sense of excitement on the LinkedIn pages. And when I would look and see how the numbers were rising, I could feel it. It was actually an energy. And mm. so I think that personal touch has an impact in virality. I also think being able to essentially follow the news cycle during COVID-19 and the racial conversations, people were so excited because they were like, oh, okay, I'm reading about this in the world. Now I can listen to this in the field and hear what other people are thinking. So those episodes were really exciting for people. The one exception 
was Ben Porter's Unpacking Principal Gifts. That episode broke records. And I think part of that is, again, the mysticism, not so much of the news cycle, but of just raising huge gifts. People want to know how to do it. I think you've done a great job and I want to make it required reading, but I guess that wouldn't be appropriate. But every once in a while, I try to slip it through. Well, I appreciate that. And the metrics have reflected that because the greater Ithaca area is a top region. It's a hot spot. Yeah. So thank you, everyone in the Ithaca area. Your listens are appreciated. As we know from so many of these episodes and all, so many of the conversations we've had, you know, we've seen Case go online with their big conference for this year. Everyone has made changes. And I would just love to talk with you now a little bit as a leader in the field. I've spoken as what I've learned as a podcast host, but as a leader in the field, what have you learned in 2020? And what have been some of the changes that you've made and you're thinking about going into 21? I don't know if I've learned it, but it's been reinforced is my view that American universities and colleges are nimble and they're flexible and they've changed for centuries. And I'll just speak from the vantage point of a research university, Cornell University, where I work. I I couldn't be any prouder of how our university has faced the pandemic. It began in March and April when our medical school in New York City literally helped save untold lives in New York City with our, with our, um, our faculty and our staff serving the health needs of people in New York City. And then our leaders, my boss and the provost here at Cornell decided to bring, to invite all of our students back on a science-based, data-based approach. Granted, we are in greater Ithaca, which is not uh, New York City or Chicago, but we invited all of our students back. 98% re-enrolled, 70% came back to campus. I guess two-thirds of our classes were virtual and one-third were in-person. And I've heard stories about students applauding for their faculty after an in-person lecture because it was so meaningful to them. And our students, people said, you know, our students just couldn't behave. Well, our students showed they could behave. Our students were extraordinary. Serving the public's health needs, serving the education needs, and of course the research that that our teams are, are doing around the disease, around public health, epidemiology. What I've just been re reconvinced of is that our universities are essential, essential to our society. So I think that's been amazing, and I think that you know innovation is key, and and boldness, and and let's be honest, resources. We're a highly resourced university, so we could turn our labs in the veterinary school to do testing. So I sound a little bit Pollyannish, but I guess what I've, what I've learned is just that this difficult time has reinforced why these institutions are amazing. I remember early on, I was in a team meeting and I said, you know, I don't really want to get very good at asking for money and doing visits and hitting my metrics right now, because if I get good at it, we might not go back to travel. I still feel a little bit that way. And I think a lot of listeners want to know, are our jobs going to ever look the way they did? I mean, what are your predictions on that? I think they're going to look similar. They're going to look different and similar. And I have to say, I miss travel a lot. I never imagined I could not travel for Mm -hmm. nine months, literally not travel and still be able to do my job. And I can. I think what we're going to go into is just more of a hybrid world where we get more efficient, where we use the virtual to 
reach out to more people. We've done, as everyone has done, we've done virtual homecoming, virtual reunions, virtually. Tony Fauci is an alum of our medical school. We did a virtual program with him. This is a conversation I have a lot with my colleagues and, and friends of mine that are, have similar positions, and we all are just chomping at the bit to go back. And I think our view is we will definitely travel again. We'll be smarter about it. We'll be more economical. We'll be more efficient. I'm closing up one of the biggest gifts of my career. I've met with this person's attorney once, and then I've had endless phone calls, endless Zooms, endless emails, and we're getting ready to close a huge gift. You know, and the, the challenge for us is we're doing very well this year in terms of our new gifts and commitments and cash. I feel very good about it. The thing that my friends and I all worry about is the pipeline, is are we, are we building the pipeline in the way that we should in this period of time? The flip side is the number of contacts for our team in the first past of the year, first part of the year up like 5%. So our contact rate has been quite good. But you know, for those of us like me who've been around, I've been in this business for it'll be 37 years. You know, we're just used to the face-to-face and what you can't experience, what you can't see in the body language, and you can't have that kind of rapport. So I believe that we will absolutely travel, but I don't think any of us really know. I mean, we, we had to cut our budget in order to adjust to the university circumstances and we've cut travel 25% and this is supposed to be a structural cut. We'll see how it goes. So what our focus is on, how do we get, we looked at the data on, on what's the average number of visits on a, on a, when someone's traveling, it's not high enough. So I think what we're gonna do is we're gonna really be more intentional and have more impact in the number of people we reach when we're when we're traveling so we can keep the same goals. And I do also think, I heard a great, as a new book by a, a Yale faculty member, I think his name is Chris Talkas. He was talking about this period, there could be this bloom of people desiring connection and interaction when this is over. It's gonna be a very interesting time when we can all be back together again and the kind of energy that that's going to raise for all of us. I'm really looking forward to that. So I think, I think travel will be different, but this is a very human, very human business, a very interactive. We'll just be smarter and more creative in how we how we do our work, I think. If we're smart, we'll take the best of this experience with us uh, and then reclaim the things from the past that, that we all miss so much. And one of those best things, would you say, is efficiency and cost cutting? From the past? No, what we've learned from this experience. Uh, what we've learned from this experience is actually you could do a lot of things without being face-to-face. I mean, right. we used to think you can't possibly make a big ask without being in person, or you can't possibly have certain conversations without and you've being done in it. person. And we're all doing it, right? Yeah, before that. We will, never, we will never go back to having reunions in which you have to be in person. Like there will be a virtual component. To there will be a virtual component to reunions. There will be a virtual component of homecoming. And I think that that will be different. And that'll be great. One thing we're doing, I think a lot of institutions are doing are very small salons where we bring in, uh, the president brings in a faculty member too, and, and they talk about immersive health or talk about affordability or talk about our reactivation plan. We have around a screen, 10 or 15 of our very best friends from all over the country. And these are great because nobody has to get on a plane or travel. There'll be a lot of, a lot of the hybrid aspect will go from the most uh, bespoke things to, to having as many people involved in, in other big pieces as well. 
one thing I'd like to just talk about is that there's a lot of talk about, you know, will we be going back to the offices, to our offices? And everyone's talking about that. And I think, you know, there's the sense that, boy, we can save a lot of money by using less real estate. And I think one thing that I'm fascinated by is 65% of, of our team said they'd like to work remote part of the time. And so I think that's really interesting. When I, again, talk to some of my friends, we all worry about, so how do you maintain a culture when you bring people in and they just don't have that interaction? Or when we're really having those, those really intense collaborations around prospects or projects, if people are never together or rarely together, how can you do that? Those collisions you have, just being together, bumping into people in the hallway, bumping into people in the meeting setting. And so I'm, I am, I'll admit I'm struggling with that because I'm, I like to be in the office. I miss being in the office. I think it's fine to be virtual. I think it's fine to be flexible around this, but what's the core that you don't want to go any deeper than and to allow right. you to maintain culture and allow you to maintain efficiency. And I think one thing that we've also realized is the challenges that we all have in our, in our personal lives that aren't as obvious that become really obvious when everyone has to live, do their work and live together and go to school in a small apartment in New York City or a house in the country in, in around Ithaca. And, and I think we have a deeper appreciation for the whole lives of our staff members, which is really interesting, interesting. for me. We never really skipped a beat. We just, that one Monday, we just went online and figured it out. Let's talk about the racial conversation. I know a lot of schools have handled the death of George Floyd and what happened after that differently. I know that thousands of conversations have taken place around this topic and an action has been taken. Can you tell us about what you've done and what you see in terms of trends of what other schools are doing to respond to racial inequities, specifically in our field, in our offices of alumni and development? This is a, an enormous challenge for all of us. And the fact that it happened in the midst of this pandemic makes it even more difficult than it has historically been. When I look back on my career, I, I don't think I can be very proud of what I've done to, to, to really move the needle on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, and I've told my staff that I really have to focus on this for the rest of my career because the only way this is going to get better, we just have to work on it every quarter, every month, every year. Uh, that's the only way we're going to make progress because this is such a deep-seated, profound set of issues. At Cornell, we started working on this in June and actually we just had an update in our weekly staff meeting last week where we had uh, different colleagues from from schools, university units talking about what they're doing differently, how they think about hiring, how we're thinking about volunteers, identifying people for leadership roles in uh, important volunteer groups or trusteeship for that matter. What I'm hoping for is that this continues as sort of a bottom-up, top-down kind of enterprise. We just changed our mission, our core values, and, and adjusted our language to, to encompass this. We've had some great speakers, a number of great speakers. We had Birgit come back to Cornell, which was awesome. 
and we've had some great faculty speakers and and volunteers and so i think it's been a really it's it's been a good start but it's just a start and we have a long way to go we have a really long way to go we just have to keep recommitting ourselves all the time and we're lucky we've got a group of our colleagues who are really devoted and committed to this they've been working on this for months and so i i just think that we need to walk the talk and we need to just get better all the time because we can't make enormous change all at once as much as we would like. We, we live in a, in a system, in a world where that would be too difficult, but we can't give ourselves too many excuses. How are you rethinking hiring? Because I know one of our listeners wrote in that it doesn't seem as though there's a pipeline for say college students of color to identify alumni and development as a career path and to come into it early and grow into it. Is there something you know about in that area or have you thought at all about that? Well, you know, people that's a great, getting? we're talking about creating, we haven't done it, creating like an internship, uh, something with our students to start. And I think our goal was, well, we're gonna do it in the spring of, of fiscal 2021, assuming that you know we'd all be in person. So we haven't, and we're not gonna be in person, obviously, in terms of the workplace. So that's something we have to return to. Exactly. Um, so I think that that's one thing that we can do and we need to get back on that. The other thing is just have to adjust and be open. What are our expectations when we're hiring? And again, I, I don't say that we've solved this by any means, but be looking to personal qualities and experiences as well as specific jobs or kinds of institutions where people have worked. We have to be more expansive. For you to say that this needs to be a priority for the rest of your career, that's a really profound statement. Do you think that others agree with you? And could you see this as being some kind of pact that leaders make with one another or? Well, it's interesting. One, one group of friends we talked about, could we, could we be, you remind me, could we hold one another accountable? And we haven't done it. And I'll tell you the honest truth, right? We're all, the pressure we're all under to raise more dollars every day, every week, every month. We're in campaigns. We're trying to keep our staff strong. It's a fight to keep this at the front of the agenda. So I think that finding ways to keep- Even now, even just out. six months later. Absolutely, absolutely. And so mm -hmm. we have to find ways to push and pull ourselves. We have to be pushed by our colleagues, by our staff members, because it is too easy to set this aside. And so we have to find ways to keep pushing it back to the center. I have it on my weekly staff meeting agenda. It's at the bottom, DEI, and I have to confess, I don't talk about it every time, but I put it there because I wanna think that we can talk about it every week. What progress are we making? But again, I'm not doing enough of that. Our everyday pressures and work keeps us from being focused on this in what can only be the most meaningful way required to make real change. And so that's the challenge. So how are you thinking about 2021? Do you have some resolutions you wanna share with us? What are your thoughts? Well, I think my resolution is to get through 2021 and hold on and, and look forward to the new hybrid where we're together and we can celebrate together what we've accomplished as teams, what we've accomplished as institutions, and we can be in, be in the presence of the people that, that care so much about our institutions who've been incredibly supportive. 
One of the things I've learned too is communication is so important and I communicate with my team in a way that I have never communicated in, in all the years I've been a manager. I do, it's funny, I think it's maybe a little coincidental, but I do this thing every Friday or almost every Friday, I have a Zoom call with my team and Tell we call it Friday, Fridays with Fred. <laughs> But it's almost become Fred and Friends because at first it was me giving reports on what was happening with COVID and the university. And I sort of ran out of things to say. And so I started bringing in people and interviewing them. So I have, a, I have an appreciation of you. So I've had, I have had a lot of our campaign and trustee leaders and campus leaders and faculty members and some of my, some of my good friends and colleagues. We've had some outside experts on uh, ergonomics. Or, or topics like that. And people love it. They love to be connected that way. And I'm going to continue doing that. I never did that before. And so I'm going to keep doing it. And it's a great way to connect and, and inspire people. The other thing I would say is that we also um, use this time to do some real innovation because in, in having to cut our budget a, a bit, we took the opportunity to focus on what I call the 10 for five, which is a bunch of new strategies to have the strength to make some changes that we wouldn't normally have done. So it's been a very, um, it's been a very busy time. And I, I'm just blown away by, by the team and by the community. And I just keep telling our staff how lucky we are to work in an institution like ours that, you know, amongst the top four principles is to take as good a care of our staff as we possibly could. And so we have not had to, uh, we've made a lot of financial sacrifices, but we've, we've really kept our staff intact. I feel hopeful. I think it's going to be good. The world will be profoundly changed after this. We don't even appreciate that. But I think, you know, if you get to your, your trademark question, what do I know for sure? What do I know? What I know for sure is that it's a people business and people want to be together and people want to be connected to worthwhile institutions doing worthwhile things that give them meaning in their lives. And that's, you know, where we are so well suited to help people with their personal, their personal goals of, of having meaningful, meaningful lives. I appreciate this opportunity to reflect on the year and think about next year. There's a lot to look forward to. And it's nice to know that you're here in Ithaca with us through Christmas. So we're lucky. <laughs> I'll be back in New York City soon enough. Thanks, Dad, and to all of my guests this year who added so much to the conversation.